Let me pray for us. My name is Dan Steele. I'm the pastor at Maudlam Road. Um, let me pray as we look at these verses together. Let's pray now. Father, we do thank and praise you for the technology that means that we can, um, in some senses, gather through these peculiar times. We pray that as we think about these verses, um, we pray that you would speak to us clearly. Might, us, might we see more of what the Lord Jesus is like and indeed more of what it means to follow him. In his name we pray. Amen. We are rounding the proverbial bend when it comes to uh, this series in Mark's Gospel. We've been going for nearly 18 months with a big gap in the middle. Um, but as we begin to come to the very last few verses, I, I want us to see that these verses that Alice has just read for us um, are grounded in the reality of real life, in the reality of day-to-day -day discipleship. And I think that's because Mark wants us to see that, that we're not just looking at, at the cross and it's an idea out there somewhere, it's a box that we tick. These are not just nice thoughts, nice ideas, or indeed unpleasant thoughts, unpleasant ideas. They're not even just historical facts, although I think they are, and we'll see that in a bit as well. But he wants these things to shape us. He wants them to shape what we care about, um, how we live, who we are even. And so we'll see alongside the, the historicity of these verses, we'll see them in a sense beginning to outwork in daily life. Before we get there though, let me just give us a reminder of where we were last time. And maybe you weren't around or not been able to listen in. Um, but that matters because this time he picks up some of those ideas from last time and he develops them for us. Um, last time, if you were here, or um, perhaps if you were in a home group, we thought, do you remember about the breadth of humanity at the cross? In fact, Liz was picking some of that stuff up as she led us in confession a moment ago. All kinds of people turning on Jesus, all kinds of people implicated in his death. Um, but we also saw the depths of humanity. Faced with our maker, we will seek to get rid of the one who made us. Due process out the window, justice out the window. And finally, we saw even in the messiness and the murkiness, do you remember it was God's plan powerfully at work? We've just seen that with Barabbas, with Phil leading us in the kids slot. But do you remember the comment as well of the chief priests as they look up at him and they mock him on the cross? They say he saved others, but he can't save himself. But of course, not so much a case of he can't save himself, but he's choosing not to save himself so that he can save his people. Now, as we've been through this series these last 18 months or so, a number of times we've pulled back and said there are three really helpful questions to ask of each passage in the Gospel of Mark. There are three keys that are, can help us unlock what's going on or what we're meant to understand from the section we're looking at. And those three key questions are, number one, who is Jesus? Number two, what's he come to do? And number three, what does it mean to follow him? Who is Jesus? What's he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? And today I'm gonna to splice those first two together. Who is Jesus and what's he come to do? And we'll see that because here in brutal, brutal technicolor, we see where it's all been heading. Who is he and what's he come to do? Hopefully you can see that on your screen, sir. Excellent. Well, who is he? There's a notice hanging above him on the cross. 
hung by a mocking pilot, putting his, his subjects in their place. You see, you want a king? Here is your king, he's saying. Jesus is God's king, though. Though, of course, not the kind of king they were expecting. Perhaps not the kind of king they were hoping for, even. Because there he is, dying. Dying so that he might rescue a people for himself. Dying that he might lay down his life for his sheep. And it's striking, Mark doesn't labour much of the physical or the mental anguish of the cross. It's horrible, it's dreadful. But it's not his emphasis. He's just quite matter of fact about it. I take it in part because it's expected we'll know what's involved. He was writing for a people then who would know very much what crucifixion meant. The, the Romans were experts in this dehumanizing torture. The, the crown of thorns, the striking him on the head with a staff, the spitting on him, the, the nailing him to a block of wood, the flogging him. But actually, in Mark's emphasis, that is all eclipsed by the spiritual anguish that Jesus goes through. Last week, everyone had turned their backs on Jesus or turned on Jesus. Here we see as Jesus has taken on flesh. So his father in heaven turns from him. And the first key thing we see at this point when it comes to what Jesus come to do is we see the reality of the despair. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Today, we're not going to get to the very depths of why Jesus says what he says here. But do you remember it's from the start of Psalm 22. Actually, we've looked at that psalm a number of times in recent years. You can go back on the website and find the sermons if you'd like. But words from the mouth of God's Messiah as he is set upon and hounded by God's enemies. But then do you remember the psalm ends in rejoicing? The psalm ends in the nations hearing and praising God for his kindness as he's rescued his son, his king. And I wonder, as Jesus takes those words upon himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder if we're meant to hear both the pain and the darkness and the despair, but also perhaps the glimpse of hope, the glimpse of what's to come as we finish the end of the psalm in our minds. You see, the cross was the place of curse. And so as well as the despair on the lips, of people, we also see a darkness over the land. When you hear of darkness in the Bible, we're meant to understand that it reveals something of God's anger. And so the darkness over the land for three hours means that he is angry with Jesus for our sin. Now, the onlookers don't quite know what's going on. They think he's calling Elijah, which is a bit confusing, but it's, it's probably because they're not completely convinced that he's not the Messiah. That they knew from their rabbis that Elijah was supposed to arrive first. Maybe, maybe they thought Jesus would call upon Elijah to rescue him. I'm not quite sure. But there's despair from Jesus. As the father turns his face away, there's darkness all around because the anger of God. There's even more too. Do you remember last week? Remember the kids slot? We are Barabbas. We are the ones with bloods on our hands. But we are the crowd as well. And so we are the people with blood on their hands. 
the one who deserves to die does not die. The, the one who does not deserve to die dies. But at that point, then, Mott does something interesting. He, it's, as if, it's as if he was filming and the camera cuts across the city and zooms in on the temple to, to show us why Jesus is dying. Why the despair? Why the darkness? What's he come to do? Well, have a look down. It's there. A simple line in verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you know your the structure of the temple, you'll know the curtain was that bit in the temple that separated people from God. It was a huge do not enter sign, a, a reminder of our uncleanness, a reminder of his holiness, a reminder of our inability to relate to him. His purity, our impurity. His goodness are, are not goodness. A reminder of our distance from him. And, and, you know, the high priest once a year could go in on the Day of Atonement with all the necessary sacrifices in place. One person once a year. But now look what's happened. Now the curtain has gone. Turn, torn from top to bottom. Torn by God, that means. Why? Well, because the darkness and the despair leads to a doorway. Now we can know God. Now we can see God. Sin is dealt with. Access is granted. Very simply now, we can be friends with God. That barrier has gone. Because God's anger against his people's sin has gone because it's gone on his son. And so, so now it's not just a high priest. It's everyone who trusts Jesus. Now it's not just once a year. It's any time. Now it's without a sacrifice needed because Jesus is our sacrifice and his sacrifice is enough. Indeed, actually, as the curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, I think it's not just a picture of access. It's not just a picture of a doorway now. It's also a picture of judgment. And so now we don't need to go to the temple to meet with God now. Now we meet with God in Jesus. He is the new temple. He is where we meet with God now. And indeed, 40 or so years later, that temple would be destroyed. And as Jesus promised, and as they mocked him about it last week, he will rebuild this new temple in three days. And this new temple, though, it's not a, it's not a building made of bricks and stone. It's the temple of his body made of skin and bones. It's in Jesus that we meet with God now, not in a physical building. Friends, I want to say, if you've not quite got that idea before that truth you've not trusted Jesus and enjoyed that new access we have today that would be today would be a great day to do that he has made a way for us to know him the God who made the universe has taken taken our shame and our guilt and our sin and he's dealt with it That thing, whatever it is for you, that thing that you so regret or you are so ashamed of, that that thing that you are carrying with you or 
Well, you would just die if that truth got out there somehow. He's, he's done away with it now. It's gone. Jesus has died for it. And so now you can know him. No sin too big, no sin too many. He takes our guilt away and he takes our shame away. And that is really what Easter is about. Indeed, that is really at the heart of the Christian faith. That's why we sing so much about the cross. That's why Easter is such an important time for Christian believers all around the world. Because the temple curtain is torn in two. Because now we have a doorway that we might know the God who made us. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Look at the response of the centurion, verse 39. Have a look down. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Interesting, isn't it? For, for Mark, the death of Jesus is the key to his identity being made public. You might remember right through the gospel, Jesus shut up various demons and evil spirits who knew who he was crying out about him. But now it's out in the open for all to see, for all to hear. From the lips of this Gentile soldier, even. The, the religious so-called insiders, they execute him. The oppressive outsider soldiers identify him. The ones who should have known it missed it. The ones who shouldn't, they, they get it. Once again, the topsy-turvy kingdom of God. And the answer for us, who is Jesus? Who is he? He's the son of God. And the centurion sees it. And he tells us. Which means, of course, if you remember, if you've got a good memory, that the gospel has come full circle right back on day one, 18 months ago, when it all kicked off. Mark began his little account of Jesus, this theological biography, and he said the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the son of God, one verse one. And before the centurion, just a handful of people had been in on this identity. They knew that Jesus was God's son. And so, you see, maybe what Mark wants us to see is this curtain not only stops physical access to the Holy of Holies in the temple, but in a way, maybe this curtain hides and separates God from humanity. But now the temple curtain is torn. Which means as Jesus dies, we discover he is the one who enables God himself to be seen. By everyone, by all of humanity. The invisible, perhaps particularly at and after the cross, becomes visible. Who is he? What's he come to do? He's, he's God's king. He's God's son. And he's come to die. He's come to take the father's anger upon himself and to make a way known that he might be revealed to all. Before we come on to what it means to follow him now, I want to just take a brief sort of sidebar. Maybe you're watching and you're something of a sceptic or you're not quite sure where you stand on these things. Friends, Mark wants us to be clear that what he writes is real. It, it actually happens. And he wants us to trust him in that. 
he wants to see this is not some kind of a fairy story or some kind of nice idea or an example to follow or a poem to help us get through life. Now, this is rooted in history. It's rooted in facts. Essentially, Mark says to us, you can put it in your diary if you want to. He makes very clear what is happening and then when it happens, which means which means if you were in the right place at the right time, you could have seen it with your own eyes. You could have been there. As in verse 42, he says it was preparation day. That's the day before the Sabbath, as the evening approached. It's Friday evening. And then next week, if you just flick over the page if you like for a sneaky peek, 16 verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, that's Saturday evening. Or 16 verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, that's Sunday morning. He records the actual time for us. These are not just nice ideas or fairy stories. It's not just a philosophy. These are facts. The other part of this sidebar for the, for the sceptical, they're not quite sure, as Mark tries to help us to trust him, is just some of the little details. As we look at what it means to follow him, you will notice some of those details that he outlines for us. So what does it mean to follow him? Well, it's been a while. Let me read the rest of the passage again for us. And you'll see here we have, if you like, two encounters, two sets of people taking centre stage, one after another. Let me read from verse 42. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Maudlin, Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, look firstly with me at Joseph. Verse 43 to 46, Joseph of Arimathea. What do you know of him? Well, we know he's a religious man. He's a, a member of the Jewish ruling council. In fact, a, a man of standing, therefore, a man of honour and respect. But it's likely that having his own tomb there, he, he lived nearby to Jerusalem and, and he was rich. And so many see that as, that as an answering the Isaiah 53 verse 9 prophecy, Jesus was assigned a grave with the rich. It's striking though, isn't it, at the end of the gospel where there's been so much conflict with the kind of religious establishment Joseph is not necessarily the kind of guy we would expect. Not necessarily the kind of guy who would be generous and brave as he, as he backs Jesus, as he follows Jesus. But we see he is one waiting for the kingdom of God. He was faithful. It's almost as if Mark wants us to see that we can't paint the whole sort of religious establishment with the same brush. It's too simplistic. And so Joseph comes to Pilate. He comes and asks for the body and it's confirmed that the Jesus has died so he prepares and he buries the body at, 
significant personal cost. Cost as he buys the linen and uses his own tomb. But I take it as well, there's a cost as he approaches Pilate to ask for the body. He is bravely sticking his head up from behind the, the parapet of respectability as he makes a stand for Jesus. Bravely, willingly, publicly, he puts his name out there. Which again, as we think, what does it mean to follow him? I think Joseph is there as a kind of example for us. Very day-to-day, -day, normal example. Firstly, here's the reminder that sometimes Jesus calls all sorts of people to him, the ones we least expect. Sometimes there are surprises as to who's in the kingdom. But also the reminder that following him will be costly. Now you will know what that means for you in your context. Maybe there's opportunity in home groups to, to think that through, to pray that through a bit, where we find it particularly costly. Perhaps where we might be unwilling to stand up like Joseph and put our head above the parapet of respectability. Perhaps in terms of reputation. Perhaps in terms of job prospects. Perhaps even just financially. This will have cost him a lot. Following Jesus is costly. Cross-shaped living is costly. It's interesting, the other angle of bravery in these verses, at least as initially seen, and there'll be more on this next week, I suspect, is that of the women. So you've got Joseph of Arimathea, and then you've got the women too. Mary, Mary, and Salome, um, and possibly others as well. But they're introduced there in verse 40. So some women were watching from a distance. Among them, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had also come up with him to Jerusalem were there. We meet them again in verse 47. And as I say, they'll be there next week too. The end of chapter 15, they go and see where he's laid, perhaps preparing for the day after the Sabbath. And then start of chapter 16, Again, this will come next week. They bring their spices, the sun rises, and they go back. Why does Mark note that for us? Why does Mark bring up the women again? I, I think our very last verse for this morning is there because we see it's no case of mistaken identity. I mean, we've seen in one sense, this is not just a case of Jesus swooning, but the centurion says, no, he's dead. And the centurion knows what he's talking about. But it's also, we can say, it's not the case of the wrong tomb. Because just a few hours before these women had been there, they, they followed, they knew where they were going. These are facts. Their plan to anoint Jesus is just a mixture of, of practical and piety as well. It shows their concern, their commitment, their devotion to him. It's, it's not unlike the woman in chapter 13 who anointed him with nard, do you remember? It shows they love him. It shows their devotion, their concern for him. But it's practical too, because in hot weather, simply speaking, bodies decompose. They rot, they smell. Those little eyewitness details there, in the midst of showing us what it means to follow him, to show us that this is real. Not just a philosophy or a fairy story. These are facts. 
And again, of course, they are examples for us of what it means to follow a crucified saviour. Willing to, without shame, follow after our king. And where, for now, the disciples have scattered, cowering in a corner. Here the women make a public stance and are willing to be seen. It's interesting, isn't it? Where often the claim comes that the Christian faith denigrates women. It's fascinating, actually, in the Gospels, as here, very often it's the women who get it right. It's Mary and Mary and Salome who get it right, which, which flew in the face of the culture of the time. It was costly. They were brave. And Mark notes for us these little details, which which means that we can have faith that our we can have faith that our faith is founded on reality. We can have a humble confidence that what we believe, what we read is true. That's important because our world wants to squeeze our faith into the realm of the private and the personal. And in one sense, our faith is private and it is personal. But in another sense, it must be very public as well. Because these are facts and this is reality. Not just my truth, but the truth. Mark wants us to see Jesus really died. There was real darkness and now there is a real way that we can know the God who made us. We can be friends with the God who created the world. Because our sin and our shame and our guilt is dealt with. But then how do we respond to that while well, we respond like Joseph of Arimathea or we respond like the women, like Mary and Mary and Salome? Bravely willing to follow him. Bravely serving. Modern Road, let's be a church full of those who, who are, despite the cost, willing to follow him. Even if it's uncomfortable, even if we feel scared, willing to make a stand for him. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to be part of a church like that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what these verses show us of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Thank you that here we see he is the son of God. He is your king. And he came to die for his people, to make a way that we might know you. Thank you too for what it shows of what it means to follow him. And we pray that we might be like Joseph of Arimathea. We might be like Mary and Mary and Salome. Willing to follow you, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it costs us. Thank you that by your spirit, you empower us to do that. Help us to do that this week and beyond as we look ahead to Easter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.